James. It really is a privilege for me to continue our series into the book of Hebrews. And if you're joining us for the first time tonight, this is the third installment we write at the beginning of the book of Hebrews. And I want to begin by asking you this question. I wonder if you can relate to this. Has anyone ever invited you to something or asked you to do something and you agreed to go or to do it? And then once you get there or start doing it, you kind of just really regret it. And you kind of wish you didn't have to be there or do the thing. Right? Maybe the people that were supposed to come and meet you there didn't come and you're just feeling a little bit out and lonely. Maybe you got invited to something else after you'd already confirmed to the first thing. You're like, oh, I actually really want to go to the second thing more than the first thing. Maybe the idea you had of the thing that you, were, you committed to was so much better in your mind, but then when you actually got there, you realized that the reality is, is way less than you were hoping it would be. And it kind of bleaks you out. Well, there's one time, let me tell you a story of how this happened to me. I used to be a river guide, in case you didn't know that. I would help people paddle down the Orange River between uh, Cape, uh, not Cape Town, South Africa and Namibia, up in Nordov, it's about 800 k's away from Cape Town. And uh, one day I'm in Cape Town, and my boss phones me, listen, Brad, uh, we need you. We've got a big season coming up. We've got big preseason. We're trying to get all our guides to the camp. Please, can you help us out? I'm like, sure, no worries. So like a couple of days later, I'm at the, at the guide base and, uh, in Cape Town. We all get into the company cars and drive our way up to the Orange River. And I get there, and I look at the tour roster schedule, and my first trip is in three weeks' time. I'm like, that's not what you sold me. Right, I was ex- you said big preseason. This is not pre- big. Pre- this is zero preseason. So I forced my way onto a trip that I wasn't on, and made them pay me for it. And then I left and went back to Cape Town. I hitchhiked out of the camp, right? And that's since hence become known as called pulling a Brad. When I arrived three weeks later for my actual trip, needless to say, the uh, the guy in charge at uh, of the Namibian camp was not too impressed, but uh, he had to deal with it because that was my trip. Anyway. I, I got there, I was really disappointed. The reality that I had been promised, what I had been expecting, wasn't really what I got, wasn't what I signed up for. And I think you know what it is to feel like that. Well, this evening as we read in the book of Hebrews together, we're going to read a similar story. We're going to understand, uh, the author's going to tell us a story about a people who end up in a similar space and how they respond and react in that space. But as you can see from the slide, We've we got quite a bit of scripture to work through tonight. We're going from Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5, all the way through to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. There's a fair bit of, of reading work for us to go through. And so I've, I've kind of come up with an extended metaphor to help you understand how we're going to do it. And I think it's quite cool. Hopefully you think it's cool or cute or, you know, as long as you understand it, we'll be okay. Right? Here's the metaphor. I want you to imagine we're like a bird soaring in the sky. And there's a river underneath us, right? And sometimes we're just going to be soaring up top, and we're going to see the river, and you're going to be able to see where it goes, and you're going to be able to see the landscape and the vista and everything around you. And then every now and again, we're going to swoop down, and we're going to be able to see closer in the river, and you might see some fish swimming around in the river, but then we're going to go back, and we're going to fly up high again. And then we're going to come swoop down. This time, we're going to go right down. We're going to see the fish. We're going to take it out of the river. We're going to put it on the rock, and we're going to really feast on it. And then we're going to fly back up into the sky, right? That's my little extended metaphor. I, I think it's kind of cool. If you hear me talking about birds and fish and rivers, now you'll understand where we're going, right? I want to start. Let's jump off the mountain and uh, let's, let's remember where we started because this is our launching point. 
Right, Roland started last week unpacking Hebrews chapter 1 for us. He did a fantastic job. And if you haven't listened to that, really want to encourage you to go find it on our church website on YouTube and give it a watch. It was really fantastic. But the heart of what Roland shared, the heart of what the author unpacks for us is this, that Jesus is the greatest revelation of God, period. There is no one, no thing, no instance that is greater than Jesus. He is the fullest revelation of God, and his point in chapter 1 as well is that he's even greater than the angels in how they have revealed God. Right? And, he, and he says this, he says, Jesus is such a supreme revelation of God. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. And in years gone by, God spoke to his people through the prophets and in many ways. But now God has spoken to us through his son. Jesus is the full picture of God. As such, Jesus is greater than any angel or anything else. He is the Lord God himself. He is the author and the sustainer of all creation. That's the heart of Hebrews chapter 1, right? And we would see and appreciate the greatness and the supremacy of Jesus, that he exists alone in creation, that there is no one like him, no one can compare to him. That's, that's kind of our launch pad as we go in tonight and what we're going to see. And the author picks up from that, so you have to hold that as we go. That's the, that's the uh, source of the river, if you will. That's the lake from which it comes, right? So here's our, our first section of the river that we're going to look at is Hebrews 2 from verses 5 to 9. And, um, and we're going to view this from up high, if you will, right? We're going to notice just a few things. There's a shift in direction, a turn that the river takes that I want us to be aware of. And the heart of what the author is communicating in these five verses is this. He says, but for a time Jesus became lower than the angels, because in chapter 1, Jesus was displayed as transcendent and glorious in his transcendent. He was above us. He was beyond us. Right? He controlled all things. But now in chapter 2, he wants to reinforce that idea, but he needs to prepare us for understanding that Jesus is also glorious even in his incarnation, when he became a human and when he died. He needs us to know that Jesus is still glorious in that space. And so he wants to showcase the, the cross, and he wants to say that even in the cross, at the point of Jesus' deepest humiliation, it was the greatest evidence of the glory of God. And so Jesus continues to stand above every other thing and every other person. So let's have a look together at these couple of verses. Hebrews chapter 2 from verse 5. And furthermore, it is not angels who will control the future world that we are talking about. For in one place the scriptures say, what are mere mortals that you should think about them, or a son of man that you should care for him? Yet for a little while you made them a little lower than the angels, and you crowned them with glory and honor. You gave them authority over all things. Now when it says all things, it means nothing is left out, but we have not yet seen all things put under their authority. What we do see is Jesus, who for a little while was given a position a little lower than the angels. And because he suffered death for us, he is now crowned with glory and honor. Yes, by God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone. So the author quotes here from Psalm 8, and he, he interprets the psalm Christologically. You might have heard Roland use that word last week. Right? In other words, he sees, when he sees the word son of man in the psalm, he says what the, the author meant when he wrote the son of man is he meant Jesus. Jesus is the son of man. 
Jesus it was who for a little while became lower than the angels. And he says, while this was the case, it was done so that it might achieve the way of salvation for us, which has resulted in God showering Jesus and crowning him with glory and with honor. And he says his promise to place all things under the authority of Jesus still stands, even though it hasn't happened yet. It is still to come. Jesus is still transcendent. He's still glorious even though for a time he became a bit lower than the angels. That's the heart of what the author is trying to communicate. We're going to fly on. All right. We're going to fly on to the next section from Hebrews 2, from verses 10 to 18. And the, the heart of this section is it builds on the importance of Jesus' humanity, and it shows how his humanity was a prerequisite. It was necessary in order for Jesus to become our high priest. Right? And so, so this section is really about Jesus becoming like us. And, and so this section, we're going to swoop a little lower down. You see the birds dropped a little bit. All right? And you see there are a couple of fish at the bottom. We're going to see some of these fish, but we're not going to feast yet. And we really could. We could stop here. Right? I could do five messages with this text, but we just, we're going to just notice them. I want you to notice four things as we read this text together. I want you to notice how God positions suffering to have a divine purpose in the human life of Jesus. I want you to notice the importance and the significance of Jesus being made to be one of us. I want you to notice the reasons that the author gives for how, why the incarnation was necessary for the gospel. And then finally, we, I want you to notice the wonderful explanation that we have of Jesus as our high priest. And I'm going to give you a little heads up. By the time we finish this section, it should move us to worship. It should, it's going to move us to worship. And, I, and I'm going to ask some of you to join us in lifting up Jesus. Right? And I'm going to give, I didn't give Musenberg a warning this morning right? because I trust them to go with it. But you guys, I, I want to give you a bit of a warning. We're going to go there, so be ready. Okay, let's, have, let's read together. Hebrews chapter 2 from verses 10 to 18. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. So now Jesus and the ones he makes holy have the same father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. For he said to God, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you among the assembled people. He also said that I will put my trust in him. That is I and the children that God has given me. Because God's children are human beings, they are made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood, for only as a human being could he die. And only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. And only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. We also know that the Son did not come to help angels. He came to help the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made like us in every respect, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Since he himself had gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested. It's a beautiful section of Scripture. We're going to pause for a moment, and we're going to look at just some of the fish here, and we're not going to dive deep here because, unfortunately, the author just tells us this stuff, not just in and for its own goodness, but because he wants to lead us somewhere. So we're going to track with him, but let's look at some of the fish that we find here. Here's the first one. There's this like little nugget that just, he kind of glosses over it. 
in the midst of everything else that's going on. But I want us to pay attention to this. He says, God made Jesus perfect through what he suffered. God made Jesus perfect through what he suffered. Friends, we, we don't like suffering. That, that's, kind of the, that's kind of the definition. Suffering is unpleasant, it's uncomfortable, it's often painful. It's emotionally taxing, it's physically exhausting, it's spiritually draining, it's psychologically paralyzing. When we talk about suffering, we're not talking about the frustration of getting stuck in traffic on your way to work, or when your friends make a joke at your expense every now and again. We're talking about losing a loved one, being forced out of a job, having to give up your friends, being targeted by people in society, forfeiting your home. We're talking about psychological disorders that prevent your body from operating as it should or physical trauma that lands you in hospital. We're talking about all of these things and so much more. And we're talking about one of them on top of the other on top of the other because that's often what happens. And when you're in the midst of those kind of things, I can promise you because I know and you, many of you will know this, it often feels as though God is not there. And and it feels as though a good God should prevent these things from happening. And that's the wrestle that we hold in our heart. And we go, why God? How God? Where are you God? What is going on? Here's what the author says. He says, suffering is a tool that is used by God. In fact, in fact it is something that God uses so significantly that even if he could have spared someone, he could have spared his son, but he chose not to. And in fact, instead of sparing him suffering, he made him perfect through what he suffered. And I know that might seem really strange. And it may leave you with more questions than answers. And unfortunately, I'm not going to have time to answer all of those questions because this isn't a message on suffering. But if you would like to chat, if you're in a really difficult space, we will be available afterwards and be more than willing to do that. But I also want to suggest that some of those questions, they might get answered as we begin to go forward and look at some of the other texts here. Perhaps you're asking, like I asked, how can Jesus, who was perfect in all that he did, still be made perfect by God through what he suffers? I think that's quite a good question to ask. And I think it has something to do with verse 17, and we're going to have a look at that in a moment. That's the first the first fish, we need to recognize God is at work using the suffering in our lives to make us perfect, just like he perfected Jesus. Here's another one, right, that follows just after that in verse 11. So now Jesus and the ones he makes holy have the same father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. So I know we get quite used to saying our father to God, right? But can we just pause for a moment and just allow what the author has said to sink in? Jesus is not ashamed to call you his brother. He is not ashamed to call you his sister. Let me, let me rephrase it. Jesus is proud to call you his brother. He is pleased to call you his sister. He takes joy in identifying you as a member of his family, as a sibling. Does that blow your mind? Does that just cause you to just, what on earth is happening? This is the same Jesus that Roland spent the whole of last week telling us about, how he was the king of glory, the author and the sustainer of all creation. 
that it was by his word that things were created, that he holds everything together, that he is the exact image of God, he is the radiance of the glory of God. That Jesus is proud to say, you are my brother. You are my sister. I'm so glad that you are related to me. I mean, I feel like I should just stop speaking and we should worship. That seems like the only possible response. Yeah, we're going to carry on. Because there's more fish for us to see. There's more reasons for us to worship. Right? Have a look at this one that goes from verse 14. There's this beautiful summary of the atonement. It says, for only as a human being could Jesus die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who has the power of death, and only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. Jesus. Jesus, the King of heaven, the Lord of glory, the one who is above every other. God himself had to die so that he would break the power of the devil in your life and in mine, to set you and me free from the fear of death, the one price that we must all pay, the one thing no one can avoid. Jesus died so that we would no longer live in fear of that, but we could live with an eager expectation of life with God, that we wouldn't be crippled by the stuff that is happening in this world because our God is greater and there is more for us. I mean, come on. Can we worship our king? Is he glorious? We're not done. Right. Here's the last fish in the section. Jesus did all of this so he would be our faithful and merciful high priest. Right. And he is able to help us when we are being tested. That's why he had to be perfected in suffering so that he wouldn't just know in his perfect foreknowledge what suffering is like, but that he would have walked it, have lived it, have experienced it, have owned it in his own flesh and blood. Jesus knows what it is to be human. He has experienced the fullness of the joy and the pain and the heartache and the challenge. He's been through it all. And he's navigated a way through it, always honoring God and modeling that for us. And now he's seated at the right hand of the Father and he's interceding for us. So that when I mess up day in and day out, Jesus is sitting there next to the Father and he's going, Father, forgive Brad. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's actually gone through a bit of a rough time recently. He's carrying some stuff and I know, Father, I know that's challenging for him. Lord, won't you forgive me? Father, forgive him because I have paid the price for him. And I have already redeemed his sin. And so I ask you, Father, to forgive him. Can you picture that for a moment? That the king of glory, the, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, the one who is in very nature God, is sitting next to the Father, and he's interceding for you, and for you, and for me. And he's there, and he's pleading before God. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Jesus doesn't get a Sabbath. 365 days a year, our King is interceding before the Father. Friends, what a wonderful Savior we have. Hey, isn't He amazing? Let's take a moment, and, and I'd just love for some of you to just lead us in prayers of praise, and to just declare and say, Jesus, you are so wonderful. You are so glorious, and so as God leads you, let's just do that. Let's honor him for a bit.
to God. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. What a privilege to just worship and honor our King, to be able to do that freely. We bless you, God. <clears throat> We've got to enjoy all of that, all of that goodness. The author is laying it out there, the fullness of the greatness of Jesus because he's building to something. And as we go into Hebrews chapter 3, he begins to, he begin, we're just on the cusp of him kind of the, the climax of what he's been building to. And so we're going to fly back up high a bit for this section. We're going to get back to our bird's eye picture. And we're going to see in this section a comparison that the author introduces between Jesus and Moses. And he set Jesus as greater than the angels. He's shown us how Jesus in his humanity is still worthy of all of the glory, that he is now our high priest who reigns in heaven. And now he begins to compare Jesus to Moses. Right? And, and the key thing that I want us to notice here, I want you to notice that now suddenly he moves from talking about Jesus to speaking to us. There's a call for us to now respond in light of what he said. Right? And there's a condition attached to our response that we're going to see in verse 6. So let's have a look at that. Let's read it together. And then we're going to land into the, the heart of what he's saying. Hebrews chapter 3 from verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. For he was faithful to God who appointed him, just as Moses served faithfully when he was entrusted with God's entire house. But Jesus deserves far more glory than Moses, just as a person who builds a house deserves more glory than the house itself. For every house has a builder, but the one who built everything is God. Moses was certainly faithful in God's house as a servant. His work was an illustration of the truths that God would later reveal. But Christ, as the Son, is in charge of God's entire house. And we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Just a quickly, a couple of nuggets from this section. I want you to notice how he calls us now to pay attention. He switches from speaking about Jesus to speaking to us. And he says, in light of the greatness of Jesus, I want you to do this. I want you to consider Jesus. Can you feel the foreshadowing of chapter 12? All right, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith that's coming. Right, but he's just, he's just getting us to, to get going there already. Right? I want you to focus your attention on Jesus in particular. I want you to notice that Jesus was faithful to the charge that God gave him. And then he begins to compare Jesus with Moses. And I'm going to explain that in a, in a little while in the next section. Right? But there's a reason that he does that, because Moses was a faithful leader of God's people. He was one of the greatest leaders of God's people, called the most humble man who ever lived. There's a call for us to fix our attention and our gaze on Jesus. Secondly, I want you to notice this, and this is just a small moment, but I want you to notice how he addresses us, the readers, the people he's writing to. He calls them holy brothers and sisters. And this is important because this is, we're about to enter into one of five warning passages in Hebrews. And one of the things we wrestle with is, are these warning passages written to those who are Christians or those who are not? I want to say to you, he says, holy brothers and sisters. Those who have been redeemed, set apart, regenerate. Finally, I want you to notice that encouragement in verse 6 at the end. 
we will confirm our salvation by holding fast to the end. Jesus has modeled the faithful discharge of his God-given duty, and we are called to hold fast our confidence in him. It's our confidence in him. It's not our confidence in our own ability to be righteous. It's our confidence in the fact that Jesus has done it for us, that he is our Lord and he is our Savior. And if we stay in him, we will be secure in the end. And to boast in him, just as Paul says, I boast in no one else but Christ alone. Right? He is our hope and our security. Let's jump in to the heart of the passage. Now it's time to swoop down. We're going to go right down from the heights. We're going to see the fish. We're going to take them out the water. We're going to put them on the rock, and we're going to feast on fish, which I don't really like, but this is the kind of fish I can eat, right? It comes from God's Word. Everything the author has said from 2 verse 5 all the way until 3 verse 6 has been building to this moment, right? This is the climax of his exposition. It's the crescendo of his argument. It's the focal point, the centerpiece of everything that he's been saying. This is where the river is heading. Let's read it together. We're going we're gonna to read just a bit, talk a bit, and then read some more. Hebrews 3, verse 7. That is why the Holy Spirit says, Today when you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled, when they tested me in the wilderness. There your ancestors tested and tried my patience, even though they saw my miracles for 40 years. So I was angry with them, and I said their hearts always turn away from me. They refuse to do what I tell them. So in my anger, I took an oath and I said, they will never enter my place of rest. I want to pause for a moment and, and just unpack this a little bit because the author, what he does here is he, he quotes Psalm 95 from verses 7 to 11. You can go and look that up if you want. But the psalm is actually a reference to a story that happens in Numbers 14. Right? It's a story of, of the history of the nation of Israel. And there are a couple of important things that we need to recognize in that story. So what's happened in that story, you might remember, is the spies have been sent into the promised land and they come back. Now, I want to backtrack just a little bit with you so you understand the significance of that moment. Right? Israel was a captive nation. They were slaves to a dominant power in Egypt. God speaks to Moses. Moses comes to lead the people. Pharaoh resists. And so we get the ten plagues. Remember the plagues? By the end of the ten plagues, Egypt have lost most of their livestock. Egypt have lost most of their crops. Many people have died because they can't drink from the river. And then the firstborn son of every family in Egypt is killed by God. Then the Pharaoh says, fine, you can go. So off they go, and they leave. Then Pharaoh gets angry. So he says, no, we've got to go take those Israelites out. This is ridiculous. So off the army goes to take out the Israelites, and the Israelites find themselves trapped between the Red Sea and the army of the Egyptians, who they can't possibly defeat. So what does God do? God splits the sea and says, guys, come, walk on dry land. They cross the sea on dry land. The Egyptians try to follow, and God brings the oceans down and wipes out the Egyptians. Now they're in the wilderness. What are they going to do? Well, God provides food for them. Um, spiritual manna, not spiritual, supernatural food, supernatural manna falls from heaven every day to provide just enough food for the day. Then they get antsy and they're like, but Lord, we want meat. So he sends an army of quails and they feast on quails for days. And then they have no water. So he causes water to rise out of rocks and he sustains the people of Israel in the desert. They get to Mount Sinai and the glory of the Lord appears to the whole nation of Israel. 
and they are so terrified that they come to Moses and they say, Moses, please let that never happen to us again. We can't bear to see the glory of God. We'll die. You speak to God and we'll talk to you. Right? So Moses goes up the mountain and he gets the Ten Commandments. And after a while, they, they move on and they get to the edge of the promised land and God says, send out 12 spies, one from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Send them into the land. Let them come back and tell you what they see. And 10 of those spies come back and they say, well, the land is great, but the people are in, they're, they're far too strong for us. Their military power is beyond us. Their fortified cities are massive. In fact, there are giants in the land. We can never, ever be able to beat these people and take their land. It, we should have died in the wilderness. Two people come back, Caleb and Joshua, and they say, guys, the land that God has promised is amazing. There are grapes the size of my fist. It's going to be incredible. I'm going to read from Numbers 14. The 12 spies give their report. Ten say it can't be done. Two tell the people, let's go. God has said it. Here's how the people respond. Numbers 14, 1 to 4. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader, and let's go back to Egypt. I wonder... For a moment, if you can picture how that response affected God. Just picture that. You know, we read in the New Testament, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Just picture God in this moment. God, who has done so much for them. He's paved the way for them. He's led them out of Egypt. He's split the sea and destroyed an army for them in the power of his might. He's provided food and water for them in the wilderness. He's appeared to them and shown them his own glory. And they get to the edge of the promised land, which he's promised to give them. And they slap him in the face. And they say, God, I would rather die than receive the plan that you have for me. That's what they said. I'd rather go and die in the wilderness than enter into this land that you've got for me. Listen to how God responds. How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing I will do. Your dead bodies will fall in this wilderness. And of all of your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward, all who have grumbled against me, not one of them will come into the land where I swore I would make you dwell. Psalm, 40, Psalm 95 puts it like this. Right? And if you look at the word in the Hebrew, it says this. It says, I loathed that generation for 40 years. I loathed them. They are a people who always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Can you imagine God saying that of you? It's God's description of his own people. See, we, we look at them in hindsight and we, and we think to ourselves, how can you not trust God? I mean, you could... 
if I got just a quarter of what you got to see, I mean, I would be so bold and courageous in my faith. I mean, he, he hit Egypt with 10 plagues. He parted the sea for you for crying out loud. You walked from Simonstown to Gordon's Bay on dry land. Are you kidding me? There was lightning and thunder that flashed in the sky as the glory of God appeared to a multitude of people. He provided miraculous food for you every single day. How could you not believe? But in that moment, as they came to the edge of the promised land, they forgot all of that history. And all they could see was fear. And they saw the size of the obstacles, and they couldn't see any further. It's like the story of Peter getting out the boat, isn't it? And he begins to walk on water because he's looking at Jesus, and then he sees the wind and the waves. And he can't see Jesus anymore because he can only see the sin. How often do we do that? And in case you're thinking, oh, Brad, like, hold up a minute. Like, that's Old Testament. God doesn't work like that anymore. I want, you to, I want you to appreciate the reason that the author has placed this passage where he has in this section of Hebrews. I want you to appreciate the journey of the river that's brought us to this point because that's going to drive his point home. See, he set this up to make four comparisons. He starts off by comparing the leaders, and he said the Israelite people had Moses. Moses was the greatest leader of the Israelite people in all time. He was faithful in all of God's house. Right? There was no one who was as humble as he was. He led the multitude of God's people. But Jesus is superior to Moses. We get compared to the nation of Israel at the lowest points in its history. It's a bit of a rough comparison. It's a tough time for us. We need to take a pause and, and see what the author is trying to say to us. And here's, here's what I want us to catch. He's actually making a comparison between the revelation of the people of Israel and the revelation that we have today. He's saying, you think that their revelation was incredible, that they saw God in indescribable ways, in the way in which God worked in their lives and in reality. But he's already told us that the greatest revelation of God exists in Jesus. That all that they saw, all of those amazing miracles, are just a part of who God is. And we get to see the fullness of the revelation of God. In fact, if they had had the revelation that we have of Jesus, maybe they would have been faithful. That's his point. His point is we have no excuse. We have no excuse because we have the greatest revelation of God. He is with us day in and day out. And then finally in chapter 4, he's going to make a comparison about the promise that the people are going into. They were going into the promised land. For us, there is an eternal rest that God is preparing for us. The warning is don't fail to enter the eternal rest just as they failed to enter the physical rest. Don't fail to enter into the eternal rest that God is preparing for us. Which is why he comes now in verse 12 and he begins to call us to account. So we're going to jump back to Hebrews chapter 3 now. Now you're prepared. Now you're ready. I'm getting close to being finished, I promise. Okay. Here we go. Hebrews 3 verse 12. Be careful then. Dear brothers and sisters, make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning you away from the living God. In fact, you must warn each other every day. Work together with one another every day while it is still today so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. 
for if we are faithful to the end, trusting God just as firmly as when we first believed, we will share in all that belongs to Christ. Hallelujah, what a promise. Remember what it says, today when you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as Israel did when they rebelled. Next slide, Shannon. And who was it who rebelled against God, even though they heard his voice? Wasn't it the people Moses led out of Egypt? And who made God angry for 40 years? Wasn't it the people who sinned, whose corpses lay in the wilderness? And to whom was God speaking when he took an oath that they would never enter his rest? Wasn't it the people who disobeyed him? So we see that they were not, that because of their unbelief, they were not able to enter his rest. That's the warning. That's the warning that he's built up this whole section of scripture to deliver to us. He says, friends, I want you to make sure that your heart doesn't bend towards evil, that it doesn't bend towards unbelief, that it doesn't turn you away from the living God. And we might think that an evil, unbelieving heart is something that's so far removed from us. But the author's point is this, what does it look like? It looks like the hearts of a generation who responded to God in the wilderness. It looks like choosing fear over the promises of God. It's a heart that says, well, I know God has said this, but to be very honest, I'm just too afraid, and I don't think I can do it, and I don't believe that God will come through for me. Hopefully you remember Howard's intro to the series, because in that intro, Howard explained what was happening and the context into which the author was writing. He was writing to Jewish Christians. Like guys who had been Jewish and they'd become Christian and now they were facing persecution because of their Christian, Christianity, because they were following Jesus. And so their temptation was to say, you know what, we're actually just Jews. We're not actually into this Jesus thing, that's all a mistake. In their hearts, they still wanted to be Christian, but they just wanted everyone else to think that they were Jews. Because then no one would confiscate their property. Then no one would throw them into prison. Now, friends, I'm not yet afraid of being thrown into prison, but I promise you the day is coming. The day is coming when preaching the gospel will be punishable by throwing us into prison. But that's what they were afraid of. What are we afraid of? What's the fear that's on our doorstep? What's the sin that's seeking to deceive us and turn us away from God? Is it fear like them? Is it the desire to, to be in control? Is it our pride that thinks that we can, can handle it, we can carry it? Maybe it's anger. Maybe there are many sins it could be. What is the sin that's in your heart that's seeking to deceive you and turn you away from God, that's seeking to help you to choose to not believe God, to do anything else? Because here's his encouragement to us. He says, friends, I want you to help one another. I want you to warn one another. While it's still today, before Jesus comes again, before you die and you face the final judgment, I want you to warn one another and I want you to call out the sin in one another <coughs> so that you won't be hardened towards God, so that your heart will be soft and malleable and full of, of a ready response to God. And as I was preparing this, I felt God say this to me, and I, and I offer this, this is me. I felt God say, we need to watch out for familiarity. We need to watch out for familiarity. We need to be careful that our familiarity with God doesn't breed contempt in us. See, the author's entire argument has been about the incredible greatness of Jesus. 
And it's so easy for us to lose that when we take them for granted because we get to come every week and we sing wonderful songs and we listen to someone preach and we go home, we stream and we listen to some great worship music. It's so easy for Jesus to just become a part of our lives and a thing that we do and small and colloquial. I say, friends, don't let that happen. Rejoice, celebrate, enjoy the intimacy that you can have with Jesus. It is amazing. It's the whole of Hebrews chapter 2 to help us see that. But never let that intimacy allow you to let the awe dissipate from your relationship with God. It's the awesomeness of Jesus that makes his words and his presence count for more than any other. Let's make sure we hold on to that. Let's bring this into land. All right, we're going we're gonna to fly back up high for the last section in Hebrews chapter 4. <clears throat> I'm going to try and close very quickly. All right, because here he builds onto that warning, but he gives us a promise. And he says, there is still the opportunity to enter into the rest of God. But there are two things I want you to notice. All right, the cost of your heart becoming evil and unbelieving, it's going to cost you eternity. It's going to cost you the Sabbath rest of God. But at the same time, he also tells us the antidote for that, the antidote is to respond to God in faith. We can respond to God in faith. Faith is the revelation that galvanizes uh, God's revelation to us and turns it into obedience. And then he warns us against trying to hide from God. He says you need to recognize God knows and sees everything. Let's read it together. God's promise of entering his rest still stands. So we ought to tremble with fear that some of you might fail to experience it. For this good news that God has prepared this rest has been announced to us just as it was to them. But it did them no good because they didn't share the faith of those who listened to God. For only we who believe can enter his rest. As for the others, God said, in my anger I took an oath they will never enter my place of rest. Even though this rest has been made ready since he made the world. And we know it is ready because of the place in the scriptures where it mentions the seventh day, where it says, on the seventh day, God rested from all his work. But in the other passage, God said, they will never enter my place of rest. So God's rest is there for people to enter. But those who first heard this good news failed to enter because they disobeyed God. So God set another time for entering his rest. And that time is today. There is still opportunity to respond to Jesus. God announced this through David much later in the words already quoted. Today when you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Now if Joshua had succeeded in giving them this rest, then God would not have spoken about another day of rest still to come. So there is a special rest that is waiting for the people of God. That's his promise to us. There is, a, there is an eternity with him. For all who have entered into God's rest have rested from their labors just as God did after creating the world. So let us do our best to enter that rest. But if we disobey God, as the people of Israel did, we will fall. For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword. It cuts between soul and spirit, between joints and marrow, and it exposes the innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he is the one to whom we are accountable. This section of Hebrews 4 is given to us as an encouragement, as an encouragement to do all that we can to make sure that we persevere to the end, 
that we enter into the Sabbath rest of God, that we receive the promise that He has for us and His, his concern for us and His warning is make sure that you don't allow the same sin that entered into the hearts of the Israelites to enter into your hearts. Make sure that instead you partner the revelation of God with faith so that when He speaks to you, you can, see, you can recognize that He is speaking. And because you know the greatness of God, because you know that He is superior to any other being, to any other revelation, that there is no one like Him, when God has spoken, you can step with boldness and with confidence and you can believe that He will do it. And we're going to pick that up in chapter 11. All right. He's just foreshadowing that for us here. And then he warns us again, just in case we haven't been warned enough. And he says, as you go on this battle, as you wrestle in your own life to make sure that faith is a part of the way in which you respond to God, just don't pretend. Don't put on a facade. Don't think that you can trick God because it doesn't work. The word of God that he has spoken is there for you. If you read the scriptures, if you allow them to speak into your heart, they will dig beneath the veneer. And they will help you peel away the stuff that's on top. And they will show you if any sin has crept in there. And they will give you the grace to be able to call that out and to repent of it and to turn back to God in faith. That's the blessing that we have from God. Amen? Amen. That's the message of Hebrews 2 from verse 5 to 4, 13. So I'm going to close for us in prayer. I'm going to ask Rolls and the team to come and lead us in worship. And if you feel like God is, is saying something to us as we worship together, you're welcome to bring that. But we're also going to honor Him for His greatness and goodness. Let's close our eyes and pray together. Father, we are so blessed, God, to have Jesus as the, the greatest revelation of God. To have Jesus as our brother in the Lord. That He is proud to call us His brother or sister that your love for us is so great that even though the Israelites in the wilderness saw you in some incredible ways, you have shown us your fullness in Christ. And you have filled us with your spirit to be able to respond to you in faith. And so I pray, God, I pray, Lord Jesus, won't you cause faith to rise up in our hearts? Won't you give us grace, God, to see where something that is not of you where unbelief rises up in us. God, help us to see it and to root it out and to throw it away and to say, Jesus, I want to follow you more than anything else. I want to believe that I can go wherever you lead me because there is no one like you. Thank you, God. Thank you. In your wonderful name, we pray together. Amen.